Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hello everyone, thanks for being here today. In my last episode, when I detailed the history of the rarely seen film, Story of a Woman, and its rarely heard score by John Williams, I had the pleasure of working with my first co-host, John Maria Caschetto. I had so much fun that I wanted to do it again right away, and I'm glad to bring in my next guest co-host for this episode, Yavar Moradi. Welcome to the show, Yavar. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I'm excited to do this. So many of you might know Yavar as co-host of the podcast called The Goldsmith Odyssey. He's one of three hosts that are kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing with John Williams' career, taking a chronological analysis of the filmography of the late and very great film composer Jerry Goldsmith. Yavar, tell the viewers a little bit more about yourself. Well, I was introduced to film music thanks to a bunch of VHS recordings that my um, Persian immigrant father recorded off TV in the 80s. So I had this legacy of ancient uh, kind of, you know, those EP eight hour long uh, tapes chock full of classic Hollywood uh, movies, like a lot of swashbucklers and westerns. And uh, it just kind of seeped into my psyche. And later on as a teenager... Uh, I, I realized that film music was a thing, and uh, I started paying attention to names like Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams, and, you know, of course, Star Trek and Star Wars were formative for me like they were for many people when it comes to those two composers, and uh, I've just always been an enthusiast and lover of orchestral music, both for film and the concert hall. I, I got into that greatly, and uh, in terms of for fun and also professionally, I've worked for a number of performing arts organizations over the course of my career. And um, about a year and a half ago, uh, some friends and I decided to start a podcast on Jerry Goldsmith's work and do this chronological approach. And I kind of assumed that uh, it had been an inspiration for you starting your own, but uh, I, I was wrong. It was just great minds think alike, and uh, we had a similar idea. Yeah, it really was great minds think alike because I um, all I wanted to do was just make sure nobody was doing this for John Williams. I didn't think to find out if anybody was doing this for other composers. And then after about maybe two weeks, two, three weeks, uh, somebody had said, oh, you're doing the same thing as Goldsmith Odyssey. And I said, what's that? And I've been hooked to it. I've learned a lot more about Jerry Goldsmith than I thought I ever could learn about it, which is kind of what I hope to convey to readers about or the listeners about John Williams. So, uh, yeah, we're kind of doing the same thing along parallel tracks. And most of you probably do not know that Yavar actually has um, a big role in the creation of some of the episodes in this podcast. And I've got to thank you for this, Yavar, because without you, I would not have added John Williams' scores for the two TV movies he did to this podcast. That includes the 1968 film Heidi and the movie we're going to talk about today, the 1971 movie adaptation of the Charlotte Bronte novel Jane Eyre. Now, Yavar convinced me to discuss these scores, and rightly so because the movies were originally made for theatrical release in the United Kingdom and mostly because Yavar counts Jane Eyre as his favorite John Williams score. So before we start talking about the movie and the music, 
Yavar, I think the listeners would like to know why this is your favorite John Williams score. Well, first, I think it's maybe a little important to note that even though these were TV movies in America, they were pretty prestigious um, productions. Like the, it was a feature film director that Williams had worked with on Fitzwilly, I believe. And, uh, you know, they weren't maybe as big budget as a lot of Hollywood films were, but they were released theatrically, not in just in the United Kingdom, but elsewhere in the world. As I understand it, actually, there's a dub of it in Chinese that was a huge hit in China, and you can go find that version on YouTube. So um, they're, they're very worthy scores, and I think in some ways um, they are like a little more mature than some of what he was doing in... in um, films that were theatrically released in the United States in the 60s. So I think these were kind of a a maturing experience in terms of his film output. Um, Maybe he had a little more leeway on them, uh, maybe because it was a familiar collaborator, or maybe because, uh, you know, there was a little less scrutiny on him as an up-and-coming composer, and he was allowed to do more in uh, these kind of more under-the-radar releases but he was primarily known as you've as you've been digging through his output for his comedy scores in the 60s and you know he had a couple of westerns and some stuff like none but the brave is a dramatically powerful work earlier but i just think for me that jane eyre was a huge leap forward in terms of the maturity of his work you know first of all it's just flat out beautiful the main theme and i would say the rochester theme even though it's a little mysterious And just the orchestrations and everything about it has this uh, pastoral English feel that was, I think, close to Williams's heart. You know, he was an Anglophile and he loved the music of Vaughn Williams and other British composers. And he felt a strong kinship, I think, with that style. And I think he felt drawn to this story. And so I think he really recognized it as the opportunity it was. And there's kind of a a sadness I like about it. And sometimes it's even a little creepy in a, in a cool gothic way. So it really was unlike any feature Williams had composed previously. And it gave him a huge story canvas. And he, he wrote something of, in my opinion, much greater depth and subtlety than he had been able to do at that point. I, I haven't dug into all of his obscure TV work, but in terms of his feature work, I'd say the closest he got to it was None But the Brave. So be, having that role as kind of this earliest composition as the fully mature John Williams we all know and love has resulted in it being so influential on a lot of subsequent scores. Uh, I'm thinking of stuff just later in the 70s, even like Family Plot for Alfred Hitchcock or Images for Robert Altman or at the very end of that decade, Dracula feels like almost the flip side of the coin when it comes to this score. And later on, e- even in some of his scores of just the past couple decades, you hear echoes of it in popular scores like Star Wars Attack of the Clones, where the love theme across the stars feels very influenced by it. And also uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with its harpsichord writing and you know general kind of uh, English influence again and, and kind of like that, that older feel. I completely agree with all the films that you mentioned that are influences from Jane Eyre because they, I did hear a lot of it, um, and I'm going to talk about one of them in particular. So when we were 
planning out the recording of this episode, Yavar, you told me that you had never seen the film until you decided to join me on this episode. So now that you've seen the film, how has your enjoyment of the score changed? Yeah, I guess it's a little something of a a lost film, maybe not forgotten, but it certainly hasn't been preserved in good quality. The uh, the the version we both watched was on Amazon Prime, and it has the gall to call itself digitally remastered, and it just looks it looks really bad. Like you can tell, is just like a VHS copy or something like that and the sound isn't great but it's it's enough to really appreciate the film I think and especially the score within it despite those issues in terms of my appreciation for the score um, I was really glad to have the excuse to um, you know the the impetus that is to uh, watch the film because I feel like it's a more rich and varied score in the film. There's in particular a lot more of the, um, not exactly horror, but darker music. Sometimes it veers on on horror music uh, and it really sounds like some of his music for Dracula nine years later. But in general, just the, the creepier, the more spooky stuff um, is on the album a little bit, but it gets a developed a great deal more in the film version. You know, getting that extra context uh, musically was really helpful, and and I would love for a new recording of this full thing to be produced sometime because I think a lot of people would maybe open their eyes to the depth of it a little bit more. I counted eleven film adaptations of this movie from 1910 to 2011, as well as three musical stage productions. I think this has to be the most adapted novel in history. I mean, there are a lot of contenders, but this one's certainly up there, and, and that's not even counting miniseries and, you know, stuff like that. There's, You're right, there's a lot of versions. I mean, none of Shakespeare's plays got this many film versions. I mean, Romeo and Juliet doesn't have 11 adaptations. <laughs> that's weird. No, not quite. And none of Bronte's contemporaries, including Jane Austen, got their novels put on film as much as this. Including the version we'll talk about in this episode, I've seen three versions of Jane Eyre, but they were all from the 2000s forward. So it's interesting to see, uh, I guess, a an older take on it, um, uh, not from the from the 2000s. It it looks it looks lived in. All the sets look lived in. They don't try to make it look like they were constructed. It really everything feels lived in in this movie. Um, and I, that, I think that's why I think this is the best version that I've seen. And it certainly helps to have the talent such as Susanna York and George C. Scott in front of the camera. And perhaps knowing John Williams did the music affected my enjoyment of the film, though. I, I like this version of it, but I wouldn't say it's, it's flawless or the best version I've seen just because I think that, well, I mean, maybe I'd reassess it if there was a new restoration of it, but, um... I felt like some of the chemistry was lacking a little bit between the two leads, even though they're both great actors in their own right. And and George C. Scott, I don't know, seeing General Patton, you know, immediately after uh, Patton in a dashing romantic role was a little bit weird casting to me. And, and, he, and he's an American, so... He stuck out a little bit for me, and and uh, I, I don't know, it's a little bit of a blemish on what is otherwise a, a very good adaptation. Well, as you said, the version of Jane Eyre that we're discussing today was slated for a theatrical release in England in December 1970, and as you said, it went out to China, and I'm anxious to find that Chinese version. 
And it was a big hit, but I don't think there was ever a plan to put it in American theaters, at least from what I could tell, uh, because English period pieces at the time were not as popular in the U.S. as they are now. So straight to American TV screens, it went in March 1971. And you've already mentioned that the director of this was Delbert Mann, the Oscar-winning director of Marty. And he was coming off successful work directing Heidi in 1968, which featured music by John Williams. And after he worked with Williams on Fitzwillie and the following year on Heidi, it's no surprise that Williams was going to be asked to score Jane Eyre. Mann and Williams enjoyed such a great relationship in the beginning that Mann wanted Williams to be the composer for all of his films. Williams took the assignment to write music for an episode of the CBS Playhouse anthology series that was directed by Mann in late fall 1968. After that, Mann directed an adaptation of the novel David Copperfield into a decent TV movie in 1969. John Williams was supposed to write a score for that film, but he was asked to work on Mark Rydell's The Reavers instead, and I think we can all be grateful for that decision. Yeah, because it led to the whole rest of his career and relationship with, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg. But on the other hand, you know, uh, that film, David Copperfield, actually got a really good score by Malcolm Arnold, so it was like no big loss there either. So again, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, connection that we're talking about here with the Reavers and John Williams' career, I urge you to go back um, a couple episodes back in my podcast, and you will truly understand the importance of that score. So Jane Eyre marks what I think is a first for John Williams in that he visited the locations where Jane Eyre was about to be filmed in the English countryside. And the usual practice for a composer is to wait until he or she sees the finished film, mostly because they're busy with other projects. John Williams has even said that he prefers not to be affected by visiting the set of a film or reading the book on which a film is based. But we know that he would do that many times after this. We remember he famously visited Tunisia during filming of Star Wars, and he read the Harry Potter books before he was even asked to work on those. I think it's a case of Williams being an Anglophile and probably admiring the novel and you, I, I, I'm just surmising here, but he was probably really excited by the assignment and, you know, eager to get a, a feel for it early on and start coming up with ideas. Right, because at the time he was just finishing up work on conducting the song recordings that would be used for playback during filming of Fiddler on the Roof in summer 1970. I want to talk about the recording sessions because they took place at Anvil Studios just outside London which uh, he was already there recording for Fiddler on the Roof. So since he was already entrenched at Anvil and would be using the studio for more recording sessions for Fiddler, it was only natural that Williams would pretty much use the same orchestra for Fiddler for Jane Eyre that October. Now, Anvil has a compassionate place in John Williams' heart, I'm sure, because that's where he recorded a lot of his scores in the early to mid-70s, including Star Wars, and then in the late 70s with Superman and Dracula and a few others. Unfortunately, Anvil would be demolished in 1980, but um, they moved over to Abbey Road to uh, do some more scores in the 80s with um, the London Symphony Orchestra. So um, John Williams just loved being in London, and I think, um, yeah, he was a true Anglophile, and and that really showed in this score and the fact that he kept going back to London to, to record his film scores. And he also, even though he wasn't working with the full LSO at this time, he started establishing some relationships with instrumentalists in London. And one of them was a superb flute soloist who performed on this score, uh, Peter Lloyd. 
he was the principal flutist for the London Symphony, and uh, and I think it was an important relationship that he started here. And some of the flute solos in this, you can tell he was writing for a virtuoso. You know, it's it reminded me a little bit of uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, like when there would just be some ridiculous solo passage that spotlights the instrument, and you realize he he was composing it for a person uh, that he was familiar with their abilities on. We're going to talk about some of those flute passages. They're just absolutely stunning. I just, I marvel at them. Uh, so before we talk about this uh, music, Yavar, I'm going to give a quick rundown of the plot um, so that people kind of get an idea of what the story of Jane Eyre is. Sounds good. We first meet Jane Eyre as a young girl arriving at a school for girls in the English countryside. The school teachers mistreat her and make her an outcast. Many years later, as an adult, Jane leaves the school to take a job as a governess to a French girl who has been taken in by Edward Rochester, a friend of the girl's mother. Jane and Edward soon become attracted to one another. Edward tries to keep a secret from society and hopes to marry Jane despite this secret. The two are exchanging vows when a man disrupts them. It turns out that Edward is married to a mentally unstable woman and Jane runs away in anger. She collapses in a field and is cared for by two women and their brother. Eventually, Jane returns to Edward to find his home burned and Edward blinded. Jane stays by Edward's side and they, presumably, marry and live somewhat happily. So, Yavar, you talked about how you kind of had issues with George C. Scott and you talked about him playing George Patton. This was the film he did right after filming Patton. And his performance as Patton earned Scott an Oscar, which he famously refused on April 15th, 1971, three weeks after Jane Eyre played on TV screens across the United States. All right, Yavar, let's get to the music. Sounds good. So John Williams um, gives us an introduction to Peter, Vo- Peter Lloyd and his flute right away in the film's opening. And the flute comes in during what we're calling the theme for Thornfield, the house that belongs to Edward Rochester, before the string section develops it into different thematic material. Peter Lloyd and his flute return a little bit later to give us Jane's main theme after that. Thank you. 
Now, Yavar, I know you would prefer to call Jane's theme the love theme, but as I'm going to talk about later, I think it's not really a love theme. Um, I mean, but no, why is that? Well, it's it's it doesn't really fit kind of their their romance, um, and especially because it's used later when Jane runs away. I think that's not enough. Uh, justification to disqualify it as a love theme because I'd point out uh, the famous usage of Princess Leia's theme, which you'd call the love theme from Star Wars, when Luke watches Ben Kenobi get cut down. You know, John Williams doesn't always do a, a literal leitmotific approach. Sometimes, you know, he he will use what feels right. And But I would also make the argument that in that scene when she's left him and is traveling away from him, her thoughts might still be with him. So that that might be a, re- a reason that their love theme is playing then. But we can we can get more into that when we when we tackle the plot. So no matter how we describe it, I really like this theme because the notes are on this ascending scale that seem to suggest happiness, even though there's going to be a lot of grief and sadness in Jane's life. Now, when I first heard this theme, I immediately heard similarities to the love theme from Attack of the Clones, which John Williams would not write for about 30 years. Uh, With that ascending scale, and even though it has even some similarities to the main Star Wars theme, the kind of the little ascending and, and rising scales. I think that's actually when I first heard of Jane Eyre. Um, this wasn't one of the first Williams scores I was introduced to, but I think when Attack of the Clones came out, all the people on on all the older Williams fans on the message boards were raving about Jane Eyre and saying, you know, if you really like this theme, you should go listen to Jane Eyre. And I did, and and I fell in love with it. Now it's now it's my favorite Williams score. So, uh, what do you think of this main title music? How does it stand out for you? It introduces a lot of material very quickly and efficiently, but also not not in a rushed uh, fashion. I think it's a brilliant piece of work. The first half a minute introduces actually the mysterious long-lined theme for Rochester himself on harpsichord. Uh, and we'll we'll hear this later on in in the album Action Cue to Thornfield, which was my favorite thing on the album, but it's actually not used in the film. More on that later. But it's followed uh, after that first half a minute by an even more mysterious and ominous theme for the mystery of Thornfield Manor itself. And that's based on a seven note motive that repeats and then uh, varies a little bit and does some other stuff. So that's already in just the first minute, it's thoroughly established two of the main motifs of the score. And then there's uh, an interesting section that you described as, uh, as I believe the a string section developing it and it seems to grow out of that thornfield motif a little bit but this act this motif that kind of does its own thing doesn't appear again in the score at all so it's kind of just a one-off really cool section and williams does a lot of interesting counterpoint 
here um, before he ultimately, again, just half a minute later, he uh, introduces the love theme, or what I'm calling the love theme anyway. Um, and for me, uh, I guess that it, most people would call that the main theme of the score, and I think it's maybe a little more emphasized on the album uh, than in the film itself, because the album has a couple of uh, concert arrangements of it. But to me, it's something of a love child between uh, Nino Rota's love theme from Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet a couple of years before, and a theme he wrote for Romeo. It's worth mentioning maybe before we skip through that uh, Williams fans should really check out the film on Amazon Prime because of these early scenes of her growing up in Lowood. There's just a single track on the album of it, but there's actually a, a motif developed for that time that um, appears in four or five different cues, uh, half of which are, are unreleased. And, and this is maybe another good argument for me arguing that uh, Jane, that the love theme is not Jane's theme because we don't hear it for her in these early scenes when she's growing up. It's not like it attaches itself to her immediately. The first time we hear it is when later on Rochester asks, asks her to play on the piano and she starts playing John Williams's love theme. You've made a very convincing argument, Yuvar. I, I, I am officially convinced that it is a love theme and not Jane's theme. Now that you tell me, yes, you remind me it was not played when she was a young girl. All right, so there's a scene in her first night in Thornfield. You know, there's a lot of mystery going on. She doesn't know who the man of the house is. Um, there's a mysterious woman that's uh, supposedly um, lurking around the, the house. And she hears a laugh outside her bedroom door and goes to investigate. Peter Lloyd's flute gives us the Thornfield theme while the strings heighten the mystery of the scene as we see some strange woman in the hallway. Yeah, this is a really cool uh, short cue. It's not very extended, but it really ably uh, assists this kind of creepy scene. And I'm glad you picked this one as something to highlight because I'm pretty certain it's not on the album. On the album, the only music uh, we really get that's kind of this this creepy horror stuff is uh, Grace Poole and Mason's Arrival, track six. And this is an interesting different development of that material and, and really kind of unsettling in context. <laughs> 
this cue that I want to highlight here that I called the meeting, uh, I have no idea. Apparently, the original cue titles were lost. I actually did get in touch with uh, Lucas Kendall and Jeff Eldridge, who worked on that La La Land album, and they couldn't find any documentation. So this is one that would have to be reconstructed by ear and, and cue titles made up. But I chose this one because it's a substantial and kind of different development of Rochester's theme, unlike any other variation of it on the album. And it's worth noting that unlike the love theme, we don't actually hear um, the love theme, aside from briefly in the main title, before he asks her to play it for him. But we do hear Rochester's theme uh, before he appears in this very cue. Um, before he, we've ever seen George C. Scott, uh, Jane goes out for a walk and kind of watches the sunset, and it plays a variation of Rochester's theme. It's it's much less straightforward than its other appearances. It's kind of hesitant and unsure. Uh, and if I had to speculate, I'd say maybe it's because he's unknown to her at this point. She's only been able to kind of mentally speculate about him based on what other people have told her, and she's she's sort of been curious about who the master of the house is and who, uh, you know, who uh, rescued the, this French ward and everything. And and they haven't actually met yet. So it's, it's interesting um, that his theme has already appeared. And there's actually a beautiful swell of the theme in this cue as she's admiring that sunset during her wandering walk outside. And then we hear these strange uh, kind of clop-clop sounds that for a moment, I thought we're in the music, but then it's revealed that it's sound effects and it's his his horse showing up and startling her. And interestingly, as soon as Rochester appears and we meet George C. Scott, uh, the, his theme goes away. The second half of this cue is much darker and and more ominous, and I guess it's maybe because she's meeting him under less than ideal circumstances. Found it, woman! What the devil do you think you're doing? I was trying to move uh. out of your way. Can I help you, sir? You might fetch my horse. What is it you do to horses? Come on, come on. 
Where do you come from? Thornfield, sir. Thornfield. Not a guest, I think. No, sir. Though it's clever of you to suppose that just from looking at me. And the governess. Hmm. You'd better get back before the dark comes. Well, let's continue talking a little bit more about the, the dark moments of this movie and the score. Because uh, there's another another scene I want to talk about that uh, really I just want to highlight Peter Lloyd so much in this on this show because he is so, so good. And people who have know anything about the John Williams scores that the London Symphony Orchestra has done that, that has any flute in it from now until even the prequel uh, trilogy for Star Wars... Peter Lloyd did them, and it's really amazing to hear. So we've got to hear more of it. And he gets a lot of virtuoso flute playing in this scene that comes after a man named Mason comes to the house, and he's threatening to spill the beans on a secret Edward has that he's been trying to keep secret. And in the middle of the night, Mason screams, and he says a woman attacked him and bit him, actually. Williams First, he puts the string section to work as Jane hears this commotion on the other side of the door, most likely by this unknown woman. And Edward plans to sneak Mason out of the house to a hospital, and Peter Lloyd shows off his skills here with a wonderful flute run as Edward carries the injured man out of the house. And then we get the strong rendition of the Thornfield theme as Edward rides away in a carriage. So a little bit later, after he's healed, Mason comes back to stop the wedding between Jane and Edward because he um, does not want Edward to marry someone else because he reveals that, that Edward's already married and the woman is his sister, that is uh, Mason's sister. Uh, for the music for this scene, John Williams brings in the horns and then the strings and woodwinds provide some counterpoint, which I really like as Edward tries to defend himself before taking Jane back to the house to meet his wife, who was the one who attacked Mason earlier in the film. I 
saw her there last April. She's my sister. I'm sorry, Rochester, but it is not right. Oh my God, it is not right. Only right to condemn a man to eternal hell. But I owe you that much, and this girl. You should see her too, Jane. I insist, come. I like that you're um, calling out the horns here because I forgot to mention them in the main title, but they are uh, sort of a uh, constant presence in the score in there. They don't usually um, present themselves in a, a beautiful or romantic fashion. They're usually very low and threatening underneath, and they are one of the elements of this score that connect it so much with uh, Dracula in my mind because of how they're used in that score. And kind of makes them feel like two sides of the same coin a little bit. Right. There's something kind of light and airy on the surface, but deep on, deep down, just like this secret, this, this secret's been hiding underneath, and all of a sudden the secret's revealed and the horns can say, here it is. And that's just like what happens in the plot. So it's brilliant, you know, psychological and deeper scoring than, you know, just like a lot of the surface comedy stuff he'd been doing for most of the decade. Right. We're going to get to what I call the most dramatic moment of the film, at least musically. This is when Jane decides to leave Edward after the revelation that he's already married. And she packs her things, takes off in a carriage to a destination that's unknown to us, and I don't know if even Jane knows where she's going. And I don't understand why the film cuts from her sitting in a carriage and riding off, and then all of a sudden she's walking through the English moors, um, stumbling through the fields. But it provides Williams with a wonderful opportunity to write some fantastic music. And once again, he brings out Peter Lloyd and his flute for what I think is a relieved version of Jane's theme or the love theme uh, before things turn desperate when she's all of a sudden walking through this big storm. And that's when the strings take over and we feel Jane's desperation.
I will say that there were some times in this film where, to me, there were noticeable cuts. And sometimes they cut the music cues as well in really frustrating fashion, like they would just end something abruptly. And I, and I wonder if there was maybe, because you, you said uh, you didn't understand why the film cuts from her uh, in this case, maybe there was a little something snipped out for time or, or something like that. But it is a really powerful cue, and, uh, and I agree that it, it well conveys the, the emotion, uh, especially once the storm begins. It's so beautiful, so romantic. I could listen to that that cue. Um, it's called Across the Moors, and it just highlights even more how much uh, similarities there are to Across the Stars. And I think probably when when John Williams was thinking of um, titles for the album um, for um, Star Wars: Attack of the Clones, he probably thought, "Hey, this sounds like Jane Eyre." And I remember I did Across the Moors, and I'm going to do Across the Stars. I don't know, but it just it just was like when I saw the title Across the Moors, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So um, as we said, uh, Jane is stumbling through the, the moors. She gets caught in a storm and she wakes up later and she's being taken care of by two women and then a priest in this village named St. John. Um, they call him Sinjin in the movie. and it's, Sinjin. Yeah, I love when they do that. I've heard of St. John as a last name, but it's funny that his first name is not John, it's St. John and Sinjin, <laughs> and it's kind of weird, yep. But uh, but the, he does get a really great uh, new theme. It's kind of a one-off. It actually appears in two cues, but um, I wanted to bring this up because it's a really good example of uh, Williams making a concert version of a theme that I, presumably he didn't feel was developed enough musically in the film itself, but he made this more developed concert version for the album, uh, and on the on the album, it's called Restoration. So a lot of Williams fans will be familiar with that cue. But in the film, it doesn't get that development at all. It's actually only given a couple of short appearances, um, which are both under two minutes long. So I think combined, they have less length than the entire album cue. And um, the first time it appears is... Uh, it's there's actually a brief interlude partway into the queue with the Jane and Rochester love theme as she remembers back on on her life at Thornfield. Uh, and and then the second time it it appears a little bit later, the the theme that interrupts the St. John's theme is the mysterious Thornfield motif, uh, not the love theme, as she gets a returned letter that she's sent. And then it immediately transitions to another in-film solo piano performance by Jane of her love theme with Rochester. No, he just stood there stuttering, getting quite red in the face. Oh, promise us something. He I thought we might go for a walk. All of us. 
Don't you think you walk enough miles in this parish, St. John? I'd like very much to go. I've uh, found you some work. I doubt you'll like it, though. I'll be the better judge of that when you tell me what it is. She goes back to find Edward, and she finds out that Thornfield is burned to the ground because um, Edward's wife um, went a little crazy, jumped off the roof, um, and then in the ensuing chaos uh, caused a fire and caused Edward to, to go blind when a burning timber fell on his face. And so Jane goes to find him in um, this place where, he, I guess, he's recuperating or where he now lives. I really like this reunion scene. It's better than in any of the versions of Jane Eyre I've seen. They really made it so tender. And even without the music, I really liked it. And this is, I guess, why I was okay with George C. Scott, because he really did bring a lot of tenderness to this. I think this is his best scene with her. I agree. This is this is powerful. I think a lot of it is due to the music, but he deserves some credit too. Yes, a lot of it does have to do with the music, but it, it, George C. Scott really does his best here to, to kind of sell it. I do want to point out that uh, the film here features more music than the album, uh, and it's the same recording as far as I can tell, but the album starts like a minute in almost to, to the cue as it starts in the film, and there's some really delicate scoring early on that is is very effective and is, is kind of a shame it was left off. Okay, so we get the love theme on the flute, and then there's the harpsichord that's playing underneath that plays Edward's theme. So we get, this is another reason why I thought it was not really just a love theme, it was Jane's theme, and it was kind of like this this blending of these two people finally, because you know they, they finally agree that they're going to be together. And musically, these two themes come together and start to play off each other. But I agree that it could be a love theme. And just Edward's theme kind of going underneath, just it was just perfect. I mean, I couldn't have, I can't think of any better way to orchestrate that scene because it needed to be soft and tender. Um, and I'm glad that he really kind of let the woodwinds go with the flute and then kind of put that harpsichord underneath to kind of um, make it pastoral.
when Edward takes Jane's hand, uh, the piano plays that love theme, and it's so perfect. It's a really powerful ending to the score and, and a great um, culmination of the musical development of the, the themes. I can see why you count this as your favorite John Williams score, Yavarb, and I could see why even John Williams continually calls this one of his favorites. I mean, the themes are extraordinary, and the orchestrations, not just Peter Lloyd on the flute, but just what he does as counterpoints to what is playing in the main part of the orchestra is just, it. I, I say it a lot, it's, it's perfect. I think it's really telling that, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the earliest work of his that he's regularly performed in concerts and you know has re-recorded with the the boston pops you know a suite from and such um he doesn't do that with uh his comedy scores of the 60s at least to my knowledge and he doesn't even do it with none but the brave which is a, a pretty strong dramatic uh score i think but this one from 1970 uh which only aired on tv in the united states he has a special love for and uh I'm glad that he seems to like it as much as I do. <laughs> well, I already mentioned that really strong cue restoration from the Sinjin theme, but my favorite cue by far, and it was that way when I first heard this album, is the cue to Thornfield, which is a really thrilling action scherzo. It's, it's less than two minutes long, but it uses the Rochester theme in a way unlike anywhere else in the score, and it doesn't appear in the film itself, which was maybe the biggest disappointment to me musically while watching the film. There is a cue early in the film that's unreleased on the album that I would have called to Thornfield when Jane is traveling to Thornfield, but it doesn't uh, have the same musical quality at all. Uh, and I wouldn't imagine that he wrote the cue for that scene because it's not a fast-paced journey to Thornfield. So my speculation is that it's for um, after the thwarted wedding when he's uh, driving her back to Thornfield at that point. And I can kind of imagine this, this somewhat furious or, or you know, impassioned, almost violent music accompanying uh, a very rushed, dramatic carriage ride back to, uh, you know, to show her his wife and reveal the situation. And... Uh, at least in my head, that's what I'm imagining it underscores. Now, apparently, that section of the film, I, it was probably filmed, but it was cut before Williams got to score, uh, got to spot the film, according to the liner notes anyway. So I can only speculate that he imagined writing music for the scene and, and had maybe even uh, started composing it before he found out that that wasn't a scene he was going to be able to compose for. But he, he took the opportunity anyway, and he wrote this really thrilling action cue, which is very unlike the rest of the score, because there's nothing else quite with that energy. Thank you. 
And then it cuts to them inside the house already. You know, it just, it obviously there was something missing there, I think. And I, I kind of wish they'd left it in considering how good the music is, but maybe they, it wasn't shot that well. Maybe it was kind of boring even with, with them, you know, if they had given the music a chance to save it, who knows. Be that as it may, Jane Eyre was a very rewarding project for John Williams. I think we all have to agree with it, even if we've only heard it on the album. Uh, a year after the film premiered on American TV, the score was nominated for an Emmy in the category Outstanding Music Composition for a Special Program. And there were only three nominees that year. There was John Williams for Jane Eyre, Michelle Legrand for Brian's Song, a great score, which I've heard. I love that movie. And Carl Davis for The Snow Goose, which is a film that I have not seen, never even heard of. Now, He's a good composer, though. Yeah. Good competition, I bet. Yeah, it was really good competition. So, though Brian's Song was the more popular film, I mean, it was watched by a lot of people. Uh, it was Jane Eyre that won the Emmy, giving John Williams his second Emmy Award in just three years. It was amazing. And since theatrical films were going to keep him busy for the remainder of the 70s and most of the 1980s, unfortunately, this was going to be the last TV project that John Williams was going to do until he wrote music for the 1984 Olympics. And unfortunately, it was going to be his final collaboration with Delbert Mann, who went back to TV um, up until the 1990s. He would work in TV movies up until the 1990s. I agree. It's a it's a shame they didn't collaborate again. But at least we got this one. And I think it, it was their greatest collaboration and also one of John Williams's greatest works. All right, so that's going to do it for our discussion of Jane Eyre. Uh, Yavar, thank you so very, very much for being a part of, of the show and being my guest host today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's the first time I've been invited to be on somebody else's show, and I'd like to encourage people listening to this to check out uh, goldsmithodyssey.com. Of particular interest to your listeners, I think, would be... Uh, some of the works that Jerry did with John Williams as a soloist. And uh, it's unsubstantiated, but we think that he collaborated by playing piano on Jerry's very first film score, Black Patch. So you could hear some of Williams's piano playing there, probably. And uh, was definitely credited uh, on City of Fear. And most importantly of all, uh, the score to Studs Lonegan, 
where uh, we really single out Williams's fantastic contribution uh, as a piano soloist on that score. So check those out if you're curious uh, or you have any interest in Jerry Goldsmith at all. I think you'll enjoy yourself. All right, everybody. So let's uh, let's close it out here. And on the next episode, I'm going to talk about Fiddler on the Roof. And a lot of you know this film, but you may not know a lot of the stories that come with John Williams' involvement with uh, recording it before filming and after filming. And so you don't want to miss this. And um, I think if you're if you're not a John Williams fan yet, I think you're going to be converted after hearing the stories behind the creation of this film and the score. Thanks everybody for listening. And until next time. The baton is down. Mm-hmm.